0: Welcome to the RH podcast. We talk about business, software, and everything in between. Visit our website at www.recursive.house. Hi, how are you doing? Doing well. Good to see you. This is Zachary Green. And he's among many things. He's a writer of a book. He's a former firefighter, a former veteran for the Marines, and also a serial entrepreneur. So welcome to the program. Great. Thank you for having me on today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. All right. So if you don't mind, could you please uh, introduce yourself to the listeners and just uh, talk about your history? Sure. My name is Zachary Green.
1: I've lived most of my life in Cincinnati, just recently moved down to Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. I joined the Marine Corps right out of high school while I was in college. And uh, after the Marine Corps became a firefighter. And during my firefighting experience, I got lost in a fire and I invented a product that would help firefighters see each other in the dark and ended up growing that into about a $30 million business over about a 10-year period.
0: Wow. Amazing. So I'm really interested in sort of how this all happened. It's a great summary. Could you talk a little bit about how you ended up in the Marine Corps? So what sort of led you towards that?
1: Yeah, I was a real anomaly. My mother's a professional ballerina. She was the principal ballet dancer at the Cincinnati Ballet Company. My father is a principal bassist with the Cincinnati Symphony. My brother is a very talented musician. And then here I am, the guy that joins the Marine Corps. My friends would be outside kicking a soccer ball and riding bikes, and I'd be running around the woods, crawling around playing G.I. Joe. So I don't know what attracted me to that, other than that was something that I've always wanted to do. I was G.I. Joe every year for Halloween, and literally the day I turned 18, I, I signed up for the Marine Corps.
0: So there are a lot of other options. Marine? Were you always interested in the Marine Corps, or was there other things that had your interest, but this ended up being the choice?
1: No, the Marines do a great job of marketing, especially to arrogant uh, 17, 18-year-old boys. And for me, the fact they talked about it being the toughest, about it being the best, they obviously have the best-looking uniform, which doesn't hurt either. So those were all areas that played into it. But I think one of the ways that really iced it was when I was ready to really get serious and talk to the recruiter, I decided the recruiting stations have the Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps all next to each other. So I started shopping it out. I went to the Army and they told me about all the money I would make and all the technical skills I'd have. I went to the Navy and they talked about sailing the seven seas and all the great opportunities I would have traveling on naval ship. I went to the Air Force and they talked about how it was very civilian- oriented and how they made things easy. And when I walked in the Marine Corps, I said, what do you guys have to offer? And I'll never forget the uh, big barrel chested uh, Marine named uh, Staff Sergeant Beatrice Houston. He leans his hands back. He leans back and he's like, son, we've been the fightest fighting force for 250 years. We'll continue to be that way with or without you. The question is, what can you offer the Marine Corps? And when he said that, I was like, well, wait a second. And then he looked me up and down. He's like, I've seen your type before. He's like, there's no way you'd make it through Paris on. There's no way you make it through recruit training. You're not tough enough. And um, for me, it was a great marketing pitch because I'm like, I'm going to show you I'm tough, enough. give me that damn contract. I'm going to sign it right now. But it also hit me a little deeper than that was um, I had a lot of challenges growing up. I had ADHD pretty severely, dyslexia, a bunch of learning challenges went to five different schools from kindergarten through high school, Montessori, Catholic schools, private schools, public schools, you name it. And I was always told that I wasn't going to amount to anything. I wasn't going to be good enough. And that never really upset me. That drove me. That drove me to a point where I'm like, I'm going to prove all of you wrong. And so it really came to a head when he told me he didn't think I was even tough enough to join the Marine Corps. And I'm like, you know what? It's time I'm going to start really showing these people wrong.
0: How did your parents, uh, when they heard you were about to, I'm assuming you always told them but when you finally made that decision, and you were about, we were packing up and became super real. How was that? How did that feel?
1: They weren't happy at all. My mom was just beside herself, figured I was going to get killed at a very early age. My dad, just very anti-gun, you know, his political views are certainly not the same as mine when it comes to the military and serving your country. So it was not a pleasant decision, but I'll never forget when I graduated from recruit training. Down on Paris Island, and our family was out walking around Hilton Head, which is right next to Paris Island. And people were coming up and offering us free ice cream and shaking our hands and congratulating me. Like it was almost like a parade. And my dad, who used to be in the performing space and performing arts, used to the standing ovations. And he's like, "You just walk down the street and people want to shake your hand just because of that uniform." I could tell I really had his pride at that point in time. It really felt good.
0: That's amazing. And he's quite up there in the arts, actually, from what I heard.
1: Yeah, he's very well known. He's written several bestseller books. He travels all over the world lecturing on his technique of music and being a soloist. And for him, it's about the performance. And so the fact of me putting on that uniform, walking around, getting the feedback I got from the people, that was in his way a performance, I guess.
0: No, it's very interesting overlap. It seems to be quite common where it's really about um, relatability for most people, I know. And um, does music play any part of your life now?
1: I mean, I love music. I love classical music. I love opera music. It's not my favorite, but I enjoy it. I really love live music. I love classic rock. I love all kinds of genres and music, from rap to country to electric music. My son is really into it also. We really bond a lot going to concerts. Before COVID, we'd go to close to a dozen concerts a year so you really like that experience
0: uh, and it's a great way to bond with your kids just to listen to the music that they listen to that's for sure so you got into the uh you were suckered in by the great salesman that uh, the Marine Corps office is clearly has done this before and uh, you decided to sign up pack your stuff and leave your your old world behind so how does that transition what happened uh and it was
1: Brutal. It was absolutely the toughest thing I could ever imagine. You get down there to Paris Island and you get in two or three in the morning. It's dark out, it's hot out, there's sand fleas everywhere biting you. And as soon as you get off the bus, there's these famous, I guess the word would be infamous, not famous, yellow footprints. Those are the same footprints that every Marine that goes through that training stands on those footprints when they get off the bus. And it was just nothing but nonstop hell little sleep. You're sleeping four to six hours a day, running probably eight miles a day, exercising two, three times a day. But the physical part was tough. I enjoyed the physical part. It was the mental stuff that really started to drag me down as they really tried to break you down to get rid of those old and bad habits as a civilian and then have you retransform into a Marine.
0: And you talk a little bit about that nexus point in your book, but Could you expand upon it a little bit here?
1: Yeah. So my concept of the book is not a new idea. I mean, this idea goes back to the Odyssey and Homer and um, all the way back to ancient cultures and different communities. And that is this resistance, this challenge that helps you grow. When you lift weights, you lift heavy weights because they're harder and that's going to make you stronger. In the Marine Corps Going through that training is incredibly difficult because that has to prepare you for your crucible. Now, in the Marine Corps, they actually have an event at the very end of your 14 to 16 weeks of boot camp called the crucible. And in the crucible, you literally walk close to or you hump 40 miles with like 80 pounds of gear. You get about five or six hours of sleep over a 48 hour time period. You get two meals and that's it. And it is brutal. But that is that final point to get you to that next level. My crucible occurred about two or three weeks into boot camp when I turned left when everybody else turned right. The drill instructor pulls me aside for what's called IPT, which stands for Incentive Physical Training, which is basically push-ups, burpees, sit-ups until you almost throw up. And I remember him leaning over me as I he was punishing me. And he said, your mommy and daddy aren't here to help you anymore. And I was very close to my parents. I still am very close with my parents. The fact that A, not only was I not as good as I thought I was, but here he's verifying it and telling me in his way that your parents have always helped you out and they did growing up, but they're not here anymore. This is the Marine Corps. We're all equal. Doesn't matter if you're black or white, grew up in the coal mines or you grew up in the cornfields or if you grew up in the projects, we're all exactly the same. And I didn't have that extra ump to get me over there. And as a result, I was not as good. And I remember falling into the prenatal position, crying uncontrollably, dropped my rifle. And that was my crucible. Now, in the crucible, there's two things that happen. Number one, you have an abyss. The abyss stands for failure. It stands for darkness. It stands for death. And if you spend too much time focused on that abyss, eventually that abyss will consume you. The great philosopher Nietzsche once said, if you stare long enough into the abyss, eventually the abyss will stare back. So that's example of that would be is if you're depressed and you're upset because something happened and you decide you're not going to leave the house and just stay in your house all day, or you're in a toxic relationship and you stay close to that toxicity, it makes it a lot harder to separate and to transform. So for me, my abyss was failure, was giving up and saying, I can't do this anymore. And I then transformed, and I got through that. But when you transform out of that crucible, you have to make a change. Otherwise, you're going to get right back to where you were before. And my chain was is literally sh- shredding my old civilian ways, my bad habits, and transforming into a Marine warrior, which has driven me 30 pounds later to almost everything I do every day now. And that is the concept of the warrior ethos that the Marine Corps embraces of. Adversity helps shape you. Iron sharpens iron. The harder route usually is more difficult, but it can usually yield better things because you're willing to make it through that. And that's really what my book is about, is is this warrior's journey of resistance and conflict, your crucible, overcoming the crucible, and then transforming into a warrior from there.
0: So after that evolution coming, I would say more of a man and sort of maturing as a person in that forced maturation, what ended up happening there as you continue on in the Marine Corps? Yeah. So I obviously finished
1: boot camp, graduated. I then went on to officer candidate school. I graduated top of my class with officer candidate school because when I went to OCS, officer candidate school, I didn't go in as a civilian. I went in as a transformed warrior. So it was a lot easier. And that continued on and eventually got out of the Marine Corps. And then two years later, September 11th happened. And it was a day that really affected me as affected a lot of us. I had a lot of survivor's guilt because my buddies are out there taking the fight to the enemy. And here I am sitting back as a civilian and not training and going through all the stuff that those guys went through. And as a result of that, I joined our local volunteer fire department. I still had a full time job at Eli Lilly. I was in marketing and branding, sales, but I really felt that larger calling, which was to give back to my community. In this case here, it was was joining the fire department.
0: So how was your experience at Eli Lilly? So how long were you there for? I was there for about 10 years,
1: uh, maybe a little more than 10 years. And In corporate America and at Lilly, like anywhere else, you've got 12 to 18 month assignments, it seems like. So I started in sales, worked my way up to training into sales management. And then really what I enjoyed doing was becoming in the brand and marketing team. And that's when I really enjoyed what we were going there.
0: So what skills did you feel like you took from Marine Corps? Apart from the perseverance and things of that nature, how were you able to transform and transfer who you were into this brand new environment? Either it'd be because it seems like you're coming in from a place where there's a lot of structure, and then you now have to go into a place where there's an expectation of a different sort of agency. So could you talk a little bit about that transition and your experience and what you learned and things of that nature. I think all, and I know,
1: the, the transferable skills from the Marine Corps are all intangibles. It was dedication, it was grit, it was teamwork, it was embracing resistance. Those were all the things that helped me. Now, the, the actual skills I learned in the Marine Corps, I'd get arrested if I did them out in the civilian world, right? And we're trained killers, so that's not <laughs> something that's probably really good to do but it was problem solving. It was being creative, improvising, overcoming, adapting. And those were all the things that helped me during those early years of my entrepreneurial journey, which were difficult, but then things got really difficult in my later years.
0: You said you had climbed a little bit up at Eli Lilly, and you were at that point, probably leading teams. And could you talk a little bit about that experience, having people under you and encouraging them to move forward towards a goal? That's an interesting thing, I think, coming from the Marine Corps, where there's a very obvious goal and here's this very specific goal. So I'd love to hear about that.
1: I always had a challenge, at Lily, getting into those upper ranks, and I knew I was kind of blackballed, if you will, because I spoke my mind. And you can't do that in corporate America. When they ask you what you think, they're not really asking you what you think. They're wanting you to say, oh, that's a great project. I agree, boss, you did awesome. And so when they would show me stuff and I thought it was stupid, I'd raise my hand in the room and be like, this is not going to work. This project's." Fail, And I became getting a reputation of somewhat of a maverick, which kind of made that transition a little easier for me from corporate world. When it comes to leadership, I think the hallmark of a true leader is to develop other leaders, inspire other people to make those decisions and to lead. There's a big difference between management and leadership. Or Management is doing things right. Leadership is doing the right things. Management is checking the box, making sure you completed your task and keeping you on track to do it leadership is inspiring you to be your best version of yourself, inspiring you to do good when no one else is watching. And I think a lot of people mix that up. Also, leadership doesn't need a title. You can be an assistant payroll clerk, but you've worked there for 40 years and everybody goes to that little lady, Betty, and asks her for her opinion. Just because you're the VP of whatever, that
0: doesn't mean that you're a leader. I find it very. It's a very common theme with entrepreneurs. Is they go into a corporate environment and they're very driven by doing things well, and that doesn't always work out in that sort of environment. So I think it's a lot of learning there, where you can have someone who's very dedicated in different kinds of ways, and very giving in different kinds of ways and still in a environment like that, it isn't very really respected for that. And then moves on, it ends up doing much better. That's what I found. And I think it's good for other people when you're hearing to listen. It's like, if you don't fit in somewhere, just have that bravery and move on.
1: And I, th- I think you brought up a good point there real quick. If you don't fit in somewhere, you're not going to change the culture of that big company. That culture has been established for hundreds of years with tens of thousands of people. You're not going to be able to make much of a change at all. Again, a lot of people are very good in that environment. You've got to conform to whatever that is, but there's not a lot of room for individuality and creativity in in those larger
0: organizations. And I think what I'm learning from this conversation from you is that that bravery of getting over things, it's almost like it's almost counterintuitive because people think, OK, the army is very regimented. But that discipline is actually to create that agency. And that agency actually allowed you to have the bravery to say, hey, look, I'm going to move on from this. And a lot of people are stuck in places they're unhappy with. And it's a decision away, and just like getting outside of that crucible is just a decision away
1: embracing adversity, embracing challenge, wanting that adventure. Those are all the skills of the military, but there's also are all the skills of entrepreneurship too.
0: So you decided that you would try and volunteer for the fire department. And what happened during that journey?
1: So I joined the fire department. It's funny because in the Marine Corps, we have a great skill of taking things that are really fun and making them as miserable as possible. And in the fire service, we have a skill of taking things that are really miserable and making them as fun as possible. However, one of the
0: things that... You seem to like extremes.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. The dichotomies are pretty intense. And it's funny because as I get in more to my entrepreneurial journey, the best analogy I had as an entrepreneur is taking a bath nothing feels better than a nice warm bath but if half the bath is boiling water and the other half is freezing cold ice water it's not enjoyable and that's what happened during my journey and a lot of other entrepreneurs is you have some of the highest highs, greater than anything you can imagine. But the lows are literally suicidal. They're that tough. I mean, those abysses are that challenging. So they don't balance each other out. You just have to have both of those extremes and be able to know that you can get through those low points and then savor those high points.
0: Absolutely. You talked a little bit before to me about uh, the material that you came up with while you were in the fire service. So
1: I got lost in a fire early on, right within the first couple of weeks, it was a fully blown structure fire, no electricity is on the house, there's black smoke covering all the windows and everything else, total disorientation. And I got lost in a fire. When I got out, I remember talking to my captain and explaining how difficult, how scary it was. And his comment to me was, you just got to get used to being in the dark and being disoriented. That's just part of the process. And that just never really stuck well with me. And so I wanted to find a way that I could help solve this problem of disorientation, lack of accountability. And what I learned from Lily, it wasn't necessarily the features and benefits you focus on. It's it's the problem you're solving is what you should focus on. And in my case, the problem is disorientation. The problem is lack of accountability in a dark space. The solution I came up with was using this glow-in-the-dark material that I came up with after seeing it used in a lot of other different products, and I applied it to firefighter gear. So now you would have a non-electric glow-in-the-dark material that help you see your way around that darkness. And as I went from fire station to fire station, I would, again, talk about the problem. Have you ever been lost? What's it like when you're disoriented? Hey, I've got something that can help solve
0: that. What was the process of creating that product like? I mean, you understood that you knew what the kind of design you wanted, but then just getting that material. And it's also a different time. Now you can sort of make a call to certain companies that almost specialize in creating products for you. But that process of just the grind of, okay, this is the material I need, these people, I need to call some manufacturers. That's a much more expensive experience at that time than it would be now. I think it breaks down real simple.
1: Find really, really smart people to surround yourself with and get the hell out of their way. I know nothing about physics and chemistry, but I know people that do. And so what I was able to do is I didn't invent the glow in the dark. That's been out there for a long time. But I did find this couple of products. One was used on the back of the helmets in the Marine Corps on their combat helmets. And then the other time this product was used was in the stairwells of the World Trade Tower. And uh, actually it was on the steps and on the handrails to help people see their way out in the darkness. So I found out how they made that and what crystals they used to make it glow. Then I found a couple of producers, some of them local in Cincinnati, that specialized in epoxies. I found another person that specialized in silicone gaskets that uh, can make high-temperature silicone gaskets. And and then we just kept working. You know, they call it WD-40 because they failed 39 times before they found the WD-40 mixture. For me, we failed quite a few times, but then we eventually got it
0: right. How long was that process of product ideation to completion?
1: I would say it's been years because we're constantly coming out with that. It's like the iPhone. How long did it take to develop the iPhone? Well, it's still being developed, right? So for us, it was first material we used was a different technique that wasn't as strong. The next material we used was injection molding. Then we changed the injection molding design, which is expensive because the molds themselves cost tens of thousands of dollars, and uh, you want to be able to use that mold as many times as you can. But we changed it, so you know that's all part of the innovation journey and the innovation process.
0: So you made the material and then you decided that, hey, you wanted to make sure that people use this. So how do you go about that?
1: So I had a lot of firefighters that would see me wearing the product and ask me where I got it from. And I'd say, look, I made it. Then I used a lot of social media. Oh, so you used it
0: yourself for a while, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: I was the only one that used it. And I'd go into a fire. People would see this green glow coming down the hallway and they'd say, where the hell do you get that from? And I'm like, well, I made it. They're like, "Make me." So I sell 20 bucks here or there. Then I use a lot of social media. The great thing about social media is you can get a really large reach without spending any money. This was back in the time when Facebook wasn't really charging for ads and stuff. You could just do it yourself with viral posts. And I would go out there and say, hey, any fire department that wants me to come out, I'll buy you guys a pizza dinner and bring out some of the gear. Let me know. And someone from Arizona would pop up, get on a plane, fly out to Arizona, talk to him. I'd say, well, tell me about the neighboring department. And then I'd drive to that one. They'd tell me about the neighbor, And I spent 10 days going from Arizona to Vegas to San Diego, just dropping off materials. But over the next couple of weeks and months, I'd see all these sales happening because somebody would see it. But it really finally came to a head when I went to a trade show where there was thirty to 40,000 firefighters there. And we had a really obscure tent, very amateur looking. Was this a,
0: a trade show specifically
1: for firefighting materials? The largest firefighter trade show in the country, yeah, called FDIC in Indianapolis. And we did close to $100,000 of sales within three days. The problem was, is I had no money to buy the raw material i had no way to produce the product i had no way to fill the orders and everyone's like zach you got to stop taking these orders and i'm like no i'm a marine mission accomplishment we will figure this out we will improvise overcome adapt do whatever we have to do to fill these orders and we did It wasn't pretty but we got through it
0: all right so you fill the orders now uh, what year was this by the way
1: so this was between 2010 2011 probably
0: and at this time you went to the trade show and you had the orders and the orders had been completed.
1: Yeah, so I uh, had to raise money to buy all that pigment and to pay for all that manufacturing because you got to pay up front. And so I end up refinancing my home. I maxed out my credit cards. I Borrowed against my 401k, whatever I could do to get the cash. So there's this concept of cash conversion cycle, which is how long it takes from the time you spend your money to the time you get your profit. And it could be months because you got to buy the material, wait for it to get there. Then you got to send it to a manufacturer, get on their schedule. You're not their only customer. They've got other customers that are out there. Sometimes they prioritize those bigger customers over you and you get bumped down the the list. Then you got to sell it and then you got to get paid that's the big thing. Some of these larger companies will purposely pay you slow so they can hold on to their money. And guess what? You don't have the resources to sue them or to go after them. Or sometimes they're just so big that they just get, it gets lost. And that was a constant struggle for the first couple of years is I would make all this money, but as soon as I invested back in the company, it would take months to get that money back. And how do I operate from month to month when I just wrapped up a big deal? And that's why you can actually go out of business from taking a really large deal if you're not ready
0: for it. So you manage this, I guess, go through that hump and uh, keep going. And then then what happened? So the first thing you got to do is have a good team. And I did
1: not have a good team. I had a team with a lot of heart, a lot of passion, but just not a lot of skill because I didn't have the money to buy those good people not buy them, but pay for them. The second thing is I ran out of money. And so I ended up doing something similar to Shark Tank and I raised some venture capital financing. And with that money that I raised, I was able to really help shorten the cash conversion cycle down because I was able to buy more material and get more in inventory and get larger manufacturers. But there were still a lot of ups and downs there too. And my next crucible happened about six years into the business We're making really good revenue, but we still weren't making continual profit. And my crucible happened when I was on vacation and my CFO called me up and said, look, we're we're out of money. We've got two or three big customers that aren't paying us. We've had to have all these additional expenses we weren't expecting. And you got to prepare yourself for liquidation. And that was a very difficult discussion. And as a result, I thought I had a heart attack. I could feel my chest getting tight. I could feel things shooting down my arms, realized it wasn't a heart attack. It was a panic attack. But my abyss at that point in time was just to say, I can't do this anymore. I quit. My abyss could have been killing myself. My abyss could have been just running away and doing whatever. But what I did is I recognized the abyss was there. And that abyss for me was bankruptcy. That abyss for me was failure. That abyss for me was probably going to lose my house because the house was used as collateral on some of our loans. But the alternative was to get through that crucible, which I did. So the first thing I did is I stepped down as CEO from the company I started. Very difficult situation, but I recognized for us to really get to that next level, I needed more help. The second one is it's got rid of a lot of some of the executives and some of the vendors and the people we were working with because they just weren't helping. And when people find themselves in their abyss and they find themselves in that crucible And this is really what the basis of the book is. All that training, all that resistance that happened before that is preparing you for your crucible. That crucible is the crisis of your life, the crisis of your existence. And you have to battle that. You have to recognize that the abyss is there and not go into it. And then when you transform out of that abyss and get to that warrior level, you have to make a change because you're going to get right back to where you were before. Get rid of those toxic relationships, that bad work environment, that bad whatever you're into. And for me, it worked because within a couple of years, we had started highly profitable and ended up grossing close to $30 million. But I needed that abyss and those challenges to to be able to make those changes.
0: So could you talk a little bit about where, what you found where I guess pros and cons, advantages, disadvantages, sort of your, your skills and the things you were not so good at, where you said, okay, I need that self reflection. This is how I'm going to pivot and make decisions. And then also that very hard decision and saying this, this thing I've been building for quite some time and took a lot of risks, including my house to do. I'm going to actually have someone else to take the lead on this.
1: So when you're a startup founder, you have to do everything. You have to be the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. But as time progresses, more money comes in, as a great philosopher Biggie Small says, more money, more problems. And that is 100% accurate. More money is more people. More people is more HR issues. More money is dealing with the cash conversion cycle and all that. So for me, there was a point where I did everything to the point where I then started hurting us from growing. And the analogy I think that's really nice is your kid. You have to do everything for your child when they're a couple months old you have to bathe them you have to clean them you have to dress them you have to feed them but if you continue to do that when they're four or five years old they're not going to really grow much if you continue to carry them everywhere and not let them crawl and fall down they're not going to learn how to walk and eventually run and do this other thing so as a business you have to do everything early on you then have to start to let it grow and then at a certain point you have to say goodbye you have to kick your kid out of the house when they're 18 20 or whatever the thing is for me I couldn't make that decision on my own. I had to get pushed into that from both my investors, but also from the scenario. And what I found is I didn't leave the company. I just moved to a different position in the company and found someone that could really focus on the organization itself. And I could focus on being more of a visionary and a spokesman for my industry and a spokesman and work on some of those big sales deals and not get bogged down around accounting and tax issues and other stuff.
0: You had all these challenges, you know, congratulations on your success. And you decided, hey, I'm going to tell other people about this. I'm going to let other people know about this. And you just had to write a book? Yeah, so the journey that I took... As I started talking to my
1: other entrepreneurs, I realized they were going through the same thing I was. And then I started talking to my buddies that were still in the military or had gotten out and they'd gone through that same arch. And that arch has been around from the beginning of time. And that is going on your journey, having that resistance, having that challenge, getting ready for that big fight, that crucible, and then that transformation that occurs to get you to that next level. Or in some cases, you don't ever make it out of the crucible. I talk about in the book, people that do spend too much time in the abyss and aren't able to make out. I used two examples. One was Elon Musk, and one was Kate Spade. Elon Musk has battled depression, has battled losing multiple business, going bankrupt multiple times, but he didn't spend too much time in that abyss. He was able to focus on the next thing. Kate Spade was battling a lot of depression, a lot of mental illness, and wasn't able to get outside of that abyss, and eventually took her own life because everything that happens in that crucible is going to get exemplified. It's going to get really pushed, and some people will never have that crucible, and that's okay. They're not warriors. But not the world doesn't need all the warriors. We don't need entrepreneurs all over. We need all different types of people in society. If you don't like adventure and you don't like risk and you want that safety of the floor of not making less than X amount of money, but you're also OK with that ceiling that's going to say you're never going to make five hundred dollars or $700,000 a year. Because as an entrepreneur, you have to get rid of that. If you want to get rid of that ceiling and make unlimited money, you have to get rid of that floor also and be willing to lose it all and to not make
0: money. Would you say that this uh, warrior mindset is one way to overcome adversity, personal adversity? But isn't it really about fighting yourself? Is it like, what's the fundamental idea behind it? Like being able to overcome. You talk about the moment and you talk about how it's important to reach that moment and be aware that moment exists. But then how are you saying we are overcoming that moment is that? What a warrior makes me think of is fighting. But is that really what you're saying? It's not necessarily fighting the word in the thought
1: process of us duking it out in the parking lot. It's fighting and finding those areas that you're not good at. Finding those areas that scare you and leaning into them and getting better. Again, iron sharpens iron. Courage does not mean you're not scared. Someone says, well, aren't you scared when you go into a burning building? Absolutely. Every time I'm scared. And the people that aren't scared that go into a burning building, there's a name for them. They're called stupid because you have to respect that it's that dangerous and that life-threatening. Otherwise, you're just not really playing with a full deck of cards. So to your point is that warrior mindset is taking adversity taking those areas that you're not good at and doing things with them to help you get better and get you prepared. In addition to that, there's a whole biological component that comes into play here too. And I talk about that in the book, Warrior Entrepreneur. The parasympathetic and sympathetic systems, what happens when you go through emergency. If you ever talk to someone that's been in a car accident, they'll tell you that everything slows down. That's actually your body's ability to make your pupils bigger and make your breathing more intense, to have more blood flow to your brain so you can think better and react better, have your muscles get absolutely saturated with adrenaline. So that's why you hear these people that literally can lift a car up with superhuman strength. That's adrenaline in your body that's all caused from that sympathetic nervous system. However, the opposite also occurs once you had that shot of adrenaline and that is that big crash. So if you ever talk to someone that was almost in a car accident and then all of a sudden when they come down, they start crying they're really depressed because that's part of the yin and yang the reason i share this is as a warrior you have to get used to knowing what that's like to turn it on and then to turn it back off and to be able to control those highs and not lose your mind but also when the low comes through to balance that out To know what's happening to you and be okay with it and be able to move on. Because as an entrepreneur, you're going to have very serious emergencies that will happen. It could be walking into a meeting and forgetting your thumb drive and now your thing's gone. It could be losing your key vendor right before you go into your annual investors meeting. And you have to be able to hone
0: those skills, those warrior skills. I'm able to see you, you have warrior in your chest and you are what you say you are very much from what if people can't see you, that's very true. And what would you say to someone who would say, you've been sort of craving this and chasing this all your life and you seem like a person that's that's just like you. You've always wanted to be at the edge of something. Even when you had the opportunity to be different, you chose the other way. So what would you say to someone who said, hey, this is this is a person that's just like this and I can't be like this. And uh, I've been running away from this all my life. When this hits me, I just won't be prepared like he was.
1: So it's the same way of anything. You got to train. You know, no one's prepared for what happens to them unless they're planning for it. And what you can do is you can live a life of the non-warrior life. That's perfectly OK. But if you want that, you're going to have to train it. So how, how can we train that? Let's put ourselves in situations that we wouldn't regularly put ourselves into. Let's have those critical conversations with those colleagues that may make you want to throw up and sick to your stomach. But after you do that conversation a couple of times, you're going to get better at it. Put ourselves into those situations where we're dealing with finances and dealing with things that you just don't know about, a lot about. And you're going to lose time and time again, but you're going to get better each time. As um, Mike Tyson once said, everyone's got to plan until they get punched in the face. Well, you can be a great planner, but the reality is you're going to get punched in the face a lot, especially as an entrepreneur, especially if you want to get into those really high dollar amounts and those really high risk ventures. It's very difficult. Otherwise, everyone would do it. So I would say to people is, yeah, you may not have that mindset now, but you can train yourself into doing that. You can literally prepare in any way. And my book, I show you step by step through both examples of other people that have done it through the science that explains what's happening to the very last chapter of the book that talks about all these specific things you need to do to keep that warrior mindset sharp. And one of the biggest ones is focusing on your mental health and having time for mindfulness And time to be able to
0: deprogram, because at the end of the day, we're all humans. You can only take so much. So you talk about some of the people that you've interviewed, because you did quite a lot of research for this book, both from a biological level and experiential level. And I'd love to hear about maybe some of the most interesting people that went over a crucible and did something like you did, and were able to overcome adversity. So, is there anyone who you thought was super interesting?
1: Yeah, I'd like to talk about one entrepreneur and one individual. The the entrepreneur is someone I didn't meet, but I researched, Thomas Edison, a guy with fascinating background. He was actually assaulted as a young kid, lost his hearing. So this is a guy that's had to go around without hearing. He failed hundreds of times in multiple different projects. And when an interviewer asks him, what's it like when you fail that much? He says, no, I don't look at it as someone that failed 100 times. I just found 100 ways of it not working. The 101st one was the light bulb and started General Electric, one of our largest companies in our country. So that one of just constantly failing and failing forward, because if you don't fail, there's no way you're going to be able to proceed and move forward great quote by Teddy Roosevelt said that when you're faced with a monumental decision, the best thing to do is the right thing. The next best thing to do is the wrong thing, but the worst thing is to do is nothing. And so that's a real concept. In the Marine Corps, we were always told that you're going to get in a lot more trouble if you do nothing than if you do the wrong thing, because at least if you did the wrong thing, you had great initiative, you just had poor judgment. So the story of a warrior that I got a chance to meet was Maria Dom D-A-U-M-E, Maria was born in a Siberian Russian prison. Her mother was a Russian criminal, was in one of the crazy gulags over in in Siberia. And you're allowed to actually have your child up until they're a year old, at which point the government takes the child as a lord of the state. And threw Maria into a orphanage in Moscow that was a really not a good place. She was adopted by a New York family. And when she was about 10 or 11, she went to an event the Marine Corps was at, and they were doing a pull-up contest. And Maria came in there and did more pull-ups as a 10, 11-year-old girl than any of the Marines could. And they said, come back in a few years when you're old enough and we'd love to have you join the Marines. So she did, but she said, I only want to be in the infantry. And at this time, which was only a couple of years ago, women weren't allowed to be in combat arms. And they said, you can't do it. You're a girl. She's like, that's not acceptable. I'm going to do it. And this is the only way. And they were able to get her a contract to become in the infantry She got in there and that's when the real challenges started because the males in the Marine infantry did not want a female there. She was abused and harassed unlike anything you could ever imagine to the point where she was ready to just give up and quit. And she talked to her mom and her mom was telling about how they did a project at school for a third grade class and talked about Maria becoming a Marine infantryman and how many girls stood up and said, I want to be like Maria when I grow up. That inspired her to get away from that abyss, that feeling sorry for herself and transform and to say, hey, I'm going to do this. And um, eventually she got the greatest gift you can get from your fellow Marines, which is the nickname. And her nickname was the Dominator. And uh, for her, that was like the ultimate. So to show that she had gone through what she did growing up in a Moscow orphanage, being born into a prison, having the challenges of being adopted, she would never have been prepared for those battles that happened to her
0: when she got into the infantry. Well, Zachary Green, thank you so much for coming on. I think your book is definitely worth a read. And where can they find you? Certainly. So it's available anywhere books are sold, Amazon,
1: uh, Barnes & Nobles, Kobo, you name it. If you do go on to warriorentrepreneurbook.com, we are offering a discount for your listeners, 50% off. So the discount code is podcast20212021. In addition to that, if you want to fill out your form with your information, we are starting a 90-day warrior training program that will be a weekly one-on-one session with me where we talk about your goals. It's going to be more oriented towards startup and entrepreneurs that want to go through the warrior process, not have to make all the mistakes that I made. And over a 90-day process, it'll have you prepared and ready either to start your business or to grow your business using those warrior attributes.
0: Zachary Green, thank you so much for being on the program. And I think I learned a lot from you, and, uh, and hopefully people can read your book and learn a lot from that too. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the RH Podcast. Visit us at www.recursive.house. We're a consulting company that helps businesses build web and mobile applications. We also have businesses with digital transformation to move them into the digital age.